I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel 23. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 350. Last April, Colby and I got to go to uh, Memphis for a conference. It was uh, uh, on the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, on that night before, on April 3rd, there was a big thunderstorm that came through and uh, someone got up and talked about how that very night, 50 years ago, the night before he was assassinated, there was a big storm that came through Memphis and uh, Dr. King was sick, but they called him in and said that there was a crowd gathered and that he needed to come speak to them. And so he stood up that night and gave this sort of impromptu speech uh, called, I've Been to the Mountaintop. I'd encourage you to go and read it sometime. And what makes that speech so compelling now is not only what he said, but when he said it. The next day, of course, he would be fatally shot. Uh, there's no way that he could have known what would happen, but he certainly knew the potential dangers that he faced in Memphis and Dr. King concluded that speech with these near prophetic words. He said, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Now, those were not literally Martin Luther King Jr.'s last words, but they were his, <clears throat> his last words of record, which makes them, in fact, more significant than his actual last words. This morning, you'll notice that 2 Samuel chapter 23 begins... Now, these are the last words of David. And like Dr. King's speech on the night before his assassination, these were probably not literally David's actual last words, not the last words that he uttered in his dying breath, but they were his last words of record, his last official words as king. So I want you to think about these words as David's last will and testament, if you will. It's what he intended to be preserved after his death. And so uh, let's listen with all the care and attention that we would give to someone in his dying breath. So 2 Samuel chapter 23, we're beginning in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout forth from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed. 
with fire. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that in your great mercy and wisdom, you see fit to use sinful vessels like David and like me to proclaim your word to your people. And so, Lord, I pray that my uh, flaws and imperfections and weakness, just as David's, would serve to highlight your perfection and your glory and your power and your wisdom and that, Jesus, you would shine all the more brightly because of my and David's weakness and ordinariness. We're thankful, Lord Jesus, that you've seen fit to to put the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay so that the surpassing weight of your glory might shine all the more brightly. So God, would you manifest your glory through your word, by your spirit today, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in order to help us make sense of these words in chapter 23, I want you to glance with me back at the beginning of chapter 22. Glance all the way back at the beginning of chapter 22 in verse 1. It begins, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And the rest of chapter 22 comprises the contents of that song. And in the song, David reflects on how faithful God had been to deliver and to preserve him. And right at the end of the song, David glances ever so slightly toward the future. Look at the very last verse of chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 51. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now David was the Lord's Messiah, lowercase m. That, that word there in, in chapter 22, verse 51, his anointed is the Hebrew word Messiah. He calls himself in chapter 23, verse 1, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. That word translated anointed is the Hebrew word Messiah. It simply means anointed one. It's, it's equivalent to king. It's a way of referring to a king. Now, I want us to think about, uh, it's not Christmas, but it's all right for us to think about Christmas in September. Do you recall what the angels announced at the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, speaking to the shepherds on the hills outside Bethlehem? They said, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. They both mean anointed one. So here's what I want us to see this morning right at the beginning. That David was the Lord's Messiah, lowercase m. Jesus in Luke 2 is not called the Lord's Christ he is called Christ the Lord. So David is the Lord's Messiah. Jesus is Christ 
the Lord. He is the uppercase M Messiah. He is not only God's anointed, He is God in flesh. And in David's final words as king, he chooses to focus on God's promise of sending this true king. That's what this prophecy is about. That's what David's last words are about. They are about God's faithfulness to send the true king. And we're going to see four truths about God's true king here in this text. The first truth we see is we see the goodness of the king's reign. The goodness of the king's reign. Look with me at verse 3. David says, The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. This description in verses 3 and 4 of a king who rules justly over men is not just a, a sketch of a hypothetical king who may come one day. Notice he doesn't just say, he's not just talking about a king over Israel, but he's talking about one who rules over mankind, over all mankind. This is a description of the Messiah who will come from David's line. The New Testament begins in Matthew 1.1 by referring to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of David. Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promise to send a king for all nations from the house of David to rule forever. And the reign of King Jesus will be infinitely good. David says, when, the, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like light dawning after a long night of darkness. That will be what Jesus' reign will be like. It will be like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. When, when you walked outside this morning, it was impossible not to feel the heat of the sun. That's what David says that the reign of Jesus will be like. It will not only bring light, but also warmth. And it will be like rain that makes grass to sprout forth from the earth. Light, heat, and rain. Three things that are all necessary for life. The rule of King Jesus will be like that. It will bring life and light to His people. A couple hundred years after David spoke these last words, God spoke through a prophet named Isaiah, and he reiterated the same promise. Isaiah says in chapter 9 of his book, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah is giving the same promise that David is here. That there is one who is going to reign in justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the one who is going to do this is going to be a child who is born. There will be no end to the peace that He will bring. 
and he will be like light dawning after a night of deep darkness. The reign of King Jesus will be good precisely because it is just and righteous and life-giving and because it will never end. That's what makes his reign so good. So this passage is meant to convince us of the goodness of the king's reign, but also of the certainty of the king's arrival. The certainty of the king's arrival. Now, once we're clear on what David is prophesying about, I want you to notice how forcefully he speaks. There are times when um, when I preach and I have to speak forcefully because I'm trying to communicate the certainty with which God speaks. And that's what David is doing here. He, he has this long introduction. It's like he's winding up. Before he actually gets to the meat of what he says, there's this long buildup. Look again at verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now we still haven't gotten to what David is going to say yet. He's just winding up. He reminds us in verse 1 that he is the man who is raised on high, that he is the anointed of the God of Jacob. He was the one tasked and equipped by God to be the sweet psalmist of Israel. And twice he tells us, that what he's about to say is an oracle, which is to say these are words that are given by God. These are not my words. These are words that were put into my mouth by God. Then we get to verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. We still haven't gotten to what David has to say yet. He's still winding up. And he's explicitly telling us that what I'm about to say is not just my human guess, but it is a divine gift this is not David speaking. This is the Spirit of the Lord speaking by me. These are not my words, but these are His words on my tongue. David is the one through whom God is saying it, but it is the Spirit of the Lord who is speaking by him, the, whose word is on his tongue. And finally, in verses 3 and 4, he gets to what he actually has to say. And now look down at verse 5. This is after David has just described the goodness of the Messiah's reign. He goes on to say in verse 5, For does not my house stand so with God? For He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will He not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? In other words, God's the one who says this. This is not me. This is Him. These are His words. And He's the one who's going to accomplish this. The certainty of this prophecy does not rest on David or on any of his descendants except Jesus. This prophecy depends and rests on God and His faithfulness to keep His word. It is the Lord Himself who made with David an everlasting covenant, and that covenant is ordered in all things and secure. God will surely bring it to pass. The arrival of the King is certain. Now, this would be a tempting place to say, but Matt, we don't really need a lot of convincing here because we live on the other side of the coming of Jesus, right? We, we already know that the Messiah certainly did arrive as God promised. We've already read from Luke 2 where the angels are announcing His birth to the shepherds. 
So what does this have to do with us? Why do we need this convincing? And the answer is that there is a great similarity between the era in which we live and the era in which uh, Israel lived between David and Jesus. After David dies, which he will do in the beginning of 1 Kings, the rest of the Old Testament is, is filled with this anticipation of the Messiah's coming. That we're awaiting the, the next David. We're awaiting the descendant, the son of David who is to come. And through those years, it often seemed as if God's promise had failed and God's people were prone to compromise and to hopelessness. And so God sent prophets to them like Isaiah and like many others to call them back to faithfulness and to call them back to hope. We live in an era in which the Messiah has come, but He is no longer physically present with us. Just as Old Testament Israel was waiting for His first advent, we now await His second coming. And the way that God gives us hope is the same way that He gave hope to Israel in the Old Testament. He gives us hope through the words that His Spirit speaks. Which is why it is so important that David says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Now, we no longer have prophets who can say truthfully, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. I cannot stand up and say that everything I'm saying to you today is verbatim, word for word from the Spirit of the Lord, except for when I'm reading this book. That's when I can tell you the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me and I can read the Bible and say this is the Spirit of the Lord speaking. We have something better than uh, human prophets. We have a divine, God-breathed Word, the Bible. In this book, the Spirit of the Lord speaks. The Bible is not just a record of what God said in the past. It is a revelation of what God is saying to His people today. And so the question I want to ask is, can you imagine how utterly sinful it would have been for Israel to refuse to listen to David's prophecy? If they were to refuse to listen to David, they would not just be rejecting David's words, they would be rejecting the words of the Lord, the words that the Spirit had spoken. How much more sinful is it for us to refuse to listen to the whole counsel of Scripture, to what He has said in His Word. This is God's means of assuring us and equipping us for the certain arrival of the Messiah, not in humility this time, but in glory. And so we see the goodness of the King's reign. We hear the certainty of the King's arrival. The third thing we hear, and this one is very sobering, is we, we see the defeat of the king's enemies. The defeat of the king's enemies. In contrast to the description of the righteous king who will rule in justice and in the fear of God, notice what David says in verses 6 and 7. But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Now this could be a reference to the many sinful kings who would also come from David's line. There were both 
good kings and evil kings who came from David. But verses, verses 6 and 7 are ultimately a picture of everyone who stands against the kingdom of Jesus. And what God says through David is that those who stand against the kingdom of Jesus are all like thorns that are thrown away, utterly consumed with fire. The notion of hell is distasteful today and has been for a long time. It's not like it's suddenly become distasteful in the 21st century. It's been distasteful for a long time. What perhaps has changed is that the notion of hell, the doctrine of hell, is often just as offensive to people inside the church as it is to those outside the church. It's understandable that unbelievers would ignore or deny the biblical teaching of eternal punishment, but it is unthinkable that those who claim to be followers of Christ would ignore it or deny it. Many people would prefer just not to think about it or to leave that bit out. We treat God's Word like a buffet where we come along and say, yes, I like all the stuff about love and kindness and gentleness, but all that stuff about hell and wrath and judgment, I'll just pass. There's a word that the Bible has for when we imagine God to be something other than He has revealed Himself to be, and that word is idolatry. We have made ourselves the arbiters of truth rather than God. This is not just some hellfire and brimstone Old Testament truth. Sometimes people have this idea that the Old Testament is all wrath and hell and judgment and the New Testament is all love and mercy. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus in John 15. He says, If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Does that not sound an awful lot like 2 Samuel 23? Where the Bible encourages us, we need to be encouraged. Where the Bible comforts us, we need to be comforted. And where the Bible warns us, we need to be warned. Not everyone will receive Jesus in faith. Not everyone will surrender to Him in repentance. And those who refuse will be cast into outer darkness. It doesn't matter where they grew up, who their parents were, where they lived, whether they walked an aisle, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. If they have not truly trusted in Jesus, that is their fate. In the words of Jesus, they will be gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So just as clearly as we see the goodness of the Messiah's reign, we need to see the horror of everything outside the Messiah's reign. We need to see what awaits those who refuse to be part of His kingdom. And being in church does not mean you're in Jesus' kingdom any more than being in a garage means you're a car. Each of us needs to do what Paul urges us to do in 2 Corinthians 13, which is examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Paul wrote those words, not to people outside the church. He didn't say to, to people who claim to be unbelievers, examine yourselves and see whether you're in the faith. He said that to people inside the church. He said that to people who claimed to be Christians. Take heed of the certain downfall of everyone who refuses to trust in Christ. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. The fourth truth we see in this chapter is the devotion of the king's people. The devotion of the king's people. Verses 8 through 39, which we did not read for the sake of time, describe David's so-called mighty men. I'd encourage you to read it maybe this afternoon if you have time. 
Some of these men are singled out for acts of particular valor. Look, for example, at verse 11. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he, that is Shema, took his, hand, uh, took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. The, this chapter is filled with stories of people like that who, when everyone else was fleeing, they performed some great act of bravery and valor. And we could spend a lot of time parsing out each of these stories and looking at each individual name, but I wanted us to consider them as a whole. At the end of the chapter, there is literally a list of this group called the 30. Ironically, the author tells us that there were 37 in the 30. So probably what happened was when someone died, they would be replaced so that there was 30, but over time there were 37 people who served in that group of people called the 30. I want you to notice, though, the name that comes at the very end of the chapter, verse 39. The very last name, Uriah the Hittite. Now that's a name that is loaded. That's a name that carries a lot of baggage. Uriah is the man whose wife David stole in 2 Samuel 11. He's the man whom David uh, invited home, tried to get him drunk and send him home to sleep with his wife to cover up his sin. But Uriah said, no, 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 I have too much honor. I'm not going to go and sleep in my home when there are men who are out there sleeping in the field. And then when Uriah refused to, to go along with David's plan, David had him murdered in order to cover up his sin. We don't know the story of every individual listed among this group, but we do know Uriah's story. And this is the question that I want to leave us with this morning because chapter 23 ends with this reminder of how sinful and flawed David was as a king. And so the question that I want us to consider is, if these men took such risks out of their love for and faithfulness to David, how much more should we be willing to take risks out of our love for Jesus? Now, I'm not suggesting that this means that we all have to go and fight a lion in a cave or anything like that. But the American church is a church that idolizes comfort. When you see these people who placed themselves in harm's way, who made themselves un uncomfortable because they loved their king, even though he was terribly flawed. We have a king who is flawless, who is perfect. David did not always do what was just and right. Jesus rules with perfect justice and righteousness. David was not always merciful. Jesus is perfect in mercy. David was not always truthful. Jesus is the embodiment of the truth. David took the life of one of his own servants to cover up his own sin. Jesus laid down his life for his servants to cover our sin. 
So the question is, if they risk so much for such a flawed king, how much more ought we lay down our rights and our safety and our comfort for a perfect king like Jesus? Jesus told us what it would mean to follow Him, to live with Him as our King. It would not mean having an easy or comfortable life. It would mean taking up our cross and denying ourselves and following Him. The great irony surrounding Jesus' life is that the way He brought the kingdom was not through a raw display of power, but through rejection and death. The crown that He wore was not made of gold, but of thorns, a picture of our sin. The throne on which He sat was a cross. The king was not laid in a royal bed, but laid in a borrowed tomb. But the king has conquered. He has conquered the enemy of sin, the enemy of death. And because he laid down his rights for us, we ought to lay down our rights for Him and for one another. This is the way Paul puts it in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The way of Jesus is the way of humility and sacrifice and obedience. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to God's Word. I don't know about you, but I long for the day when Jesus' reign will be evident. We look around the world and we see evidence all over the place that His kingdom is still in need of coming. We see it in corrupt leaders. We see it in uh, disasters, hurricanes and wildfires and mudslides, corruption, murder, immorality of all kinds. The kingdom has come, and it is coming. We live in the time between the already and the not yet. And in the meantime, Jesus has commanded us to follow Him in the way of 
obedience, the way of holiness, the way of humility, the way of sacrifice for the sake of His kingdom so that His glory will be spread, His name will be known where it's not yet known. So my prayer for us this morning is that in our words, in our deeds, wherever it is that God has placed us, that we'll live for Jesus and like Jesus, trusting Him and walking in His ways. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your faithfulness to Your promise. Lord, how great You are, God, to keep Your Word to us, to keep Your promise to us. We thank You that we can have the same confidence that David had that the King is coming. That even when it seems as if Your promise has failed, even when it seems as if all is giving way, You then, Jesus, are all our hope and stay. That we have a solid rock, a sure and steady anchor, a firm foundation in You. Help us to stand on the rock. Help us to cling to the anchor. Help us to walk in the ways of our King. Lord, now as we have a time of invitation and response, I pray that You would help us to respond rightly, not by thinking of the sins of anyone else, but thinking only of our sin, and not by thinking of the righteousness of anyone except the righteousness of Jesus. Help us to look to Him in faith. Help us to surrender to Him. We pray all this in His name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.